This is a Dubai Eye 103.8 podcast. Hey, this is Sonal, and you are listening to the Off Script podcast. Today, we are delving into the world of cyber crime. Is it really just all a black box? How can we track crypto payments and get them back to the rightful owners? We have the expert Aaron Plant joining us for this interview. The big interview with Off Script. So today we're hearing from Erin Plant. She is a senior director of investigations at Chainalysis. This is a blockchain firm. We'll get into it. Don't worry. If you're feeling confused already, we will break it down for you in the most simple of terms. It's not now, a chain of blocks, is it? <laughs> she did. She did say it is essentially a chain of blocks, but it is much more complex than that. Um, the reason I reached out to her is because of a excellent long read. Do you like a good magazine long read? Uh, I love magazine journalism. It's been a while since I even did one. Yeah. Magazine journalism is just so excellent because you just have pages where you can just unpeel this layer of the story. And just it's it was so good. It was by Wired, um, Andy Greenberg. It was called Inside the Bitcoin Bus that took down the web's biggest child abuse site. Now, it is obviously difficult subject matter, but it's such a well-reported story essentially on how IT security experts are tracking down criminals on the dark web. And I just thought it was an interest, interesting subject matter. And Aaron's firm, Chain, Ana, Chainalysis, I always want to say Chain Analysis. Chainalysis has been involved with a number of investigations. They actually tipped off some security experts to that particular um, child abuse ring. And their clients range from law enforcement to victims of cyber crimes as well. And a lot of what they do to solve these cyber crimes, because you think it does feel as somebody who's not a techie, it just feels like a bit of a black box or mm. black hole, doesn't it? Yeah. You don't really know what's happening. When you, if you were to have a crypto wallet even and you hit send on that, I mean, what is happening from there, right? Oh, I mean, no no clue. No clue. But of course, Erin and her company and the people at her firm know exactly how to follow the money because that's what you do when you're reporting on anything. You follow the money and that's what leads you to the answers, right? The thing is, there seems to be a bit of a myth about the anonymity of crypto. People seem to think crypto is completely anonymous. And let's talk specifically about Bitcoin just to narrow it down a bit. All transactions, though, are available in real time on a public ledger on the blockchain. So when I asked Aaron, let's say you or I wanted to go see this. The thing is, we could. You and I wouldn't be able to make sense of it. That's a different thing. But we could access it. We could access the information if we wanted to. Um, There are blockchain explorers where you can put in a transaction hash or a wallet address, and then you can see. Any one of us can see the transactions that are happening. You can see the time. You can see the amount. And if you had some additional data tools, you could also understand maybe which entity is in control of a certain wallet that is making that transaction. Now, of course, you or I wouldn't have that information, but a firm like Chainalysis, which is in this business, has a little bit more data. So sometimes they can actually even ID certain entities that are associated with these transactions. So there are specialized firms that can help. A lot of us don't know how to do this. Aaron gave me a bit of an example of what might happen if they were working with a firm that was a victim of a ransomware attack. When we get contacted by uh, a company that's a victim of ransomware, for example, it's often before they they even make a payment. So they want to make sure that we're watching when the payment is made so that it can be traced because money moves fast on the blockchain. You know, it flows very quickly as electronic payments would and it happens immediately in real time on the blockchain. So they want eyes on. They'll often ask advice about how they can structure the payment to have it be the best chance of tracing and recovery. The payment is made. 
the money is instantly viewed on the blockchain and you can see the, you know, if it's paid in Bitcoin or Monero or whatever the request was made in. And you can see this flow of, of funds moving across services. And the there's a, an inherent attempt to build an obfuscation of of the flow of funds by the attacker. And very similarly to how money laundering works in you know, a hard currency world, the, the money laundering occurs in, the same, in a similar fashion on the blockchain. Funds usually don't just flow from one wallet to another. It goes through a whole series of attempts to hide and anonymize that the identity and who's behind that payment and ultimately try to lose the eyes that are following the funds. So we will talk in a little bit more depth about how criminals online are money laundering crypto. But we'll also hear about some specific cases. And we'll start with Colonial Pipeline, which made a lot of international headlines. They were the victim of a ransomware attack back in May 2021. It's a Texas-based oil pipeline system. And the attack essentially impacted their computerized equipment that helps them manage the pipeline. I mean, having that taken offline, they were just losing so much. It was really having an impact on their business. So they had to halt all of their pipeline operations to contain the attack first. Then within hours in uh, an operation that was overseen by the FBI, the company did pay the amount that was asked by the hacker group. It was 75 Bitcoin at the time. It amounted to 4.4 million US dollars. Aaron told me a little bit about who was responsible for the attack. This was a ransomware group known as DarkSide. And we had been tracking DarkSide for we at Chainalysis for many months. So we we were aware of a lot of the wallets that were controlled by them and the critical infrastructure components that were part of their distribution of malware. DarkSide is what's known as ransomware as a service. So they essentially sell the license to use their malware. And those licensees can deploy their malware on victims. So it allows the ransomware to be spread to a lot more victims because each ransomer is not having to build their own malware and build their own infrastructure that supports that malware. They're literally just licensing the, the, the tool to be able to do it. But to do that, they then pay a percentage of the ransom back to the administrator. So for Colonial Pipeline, when the payment was made, we saw the payment get made and then we saw it split. And 20% of the payment goes to the administrator. And that's the fee as being the, the administrator owner of that malware itself. And that's dark side. And then you see 80% of the fee go to the group behind that actual attack. Even though it's kind of obvious, I'd never thought of malware as a business in that kind of sense, almost the way that I license Adobe or I license Microsoft to use their tools. This malware is being provided by Darkside. They've come up with all the technology. How do you reach out to Darkside? Do Darkside have a website? Are they, are they, you know, are they advertising on Instagram? That's a good question. I mean, there must be ways to find them on the dark web. I would assume, or maybe there's a bit of a network. I didn't actually ask Aaron that question specifically. If you wanted to get, you know, you got to, you got to be introduced, probably. Who knows? To Darkside. Who knows exactly how you reach out, how you get access to that malware? But once you do get access to that malware, what happens is they're constantly profiting from your attacks. So they could have a hundred 
hundred different attackers who are using their software, they're getting a 20% cut. They don't have to do the attacks themselves. Yeah, of course. Right? So two different things happen. Darkside, which is providing that malware, will, once they get their 20% cut and when they get their money, they will try to cover their tracks. So there's, and we'll talk about how they do this, about anonymizing the transactions and the money. And it's essentially money laundering that they try to attempt to obfuscate what's happening to the funds. What they'll do is they'll often invest it back into their illegal business. Now, the group that has actually bought the malware and they've launched the attack, oftentimes they want to cash out. If they're, um, you know, doing this ransomware against this Colonial Pipeline company, they actually want the cash, the funds, so they can use those cash funds. In order to do that, they have to go to an exchange. They have to find a way to turn that crypto that they've got into actual fiat currency, right? So at that point, Chainalysis was able to trace the funds. And in this case, the FBI was able to actually seize a percentage, a big percentage of the funds stolen, 64 of those 75 Bitcoins that were paid. Do we know so, who the um, offending the group were? Well, no. I mean, I didn't. I didn't look into that okay. in too much more depth. But, but yeah. In some cases, again, you think that, as I said, it's a bit of a black hole. What, what's happening? It's impossible to trace those funds. It's not impossible to trace those funds. In fact, experts have traced those funds. Law enforcement have managed to actually get some of those funds back. I did ask her how the FBI has the authority. And even the technical ability to confiscate, confiscate a stolen token. Because when you think of Bitcoin, when you think of cryptocurrency, often it's decentralized finance. There's no key regulator to say, here are the laws of how we will use this and we are going to monitor and make sure these laws are abided by, right? It's all kind of decentralized. It's mined on people's individual computers and systems, and it, it's all managed like that. There's no central body to say, no, this is illegal. You've stolen these funds. Return them. Mm. Right. So how can the FBI then come in and say, that's not yours, give it back? Um, she explained to me that actually if it's just sitting in a wallet that's held by the attacker, there's nothing you can do. It's just sitting there in their wallet. But at some point, the people who are doing these attacks want to cash out. And it's at that stage you need to go through an exchange. You have to go through some sort of company or service that's going to enable you to cash out. Right. So whether that's six months later after the attack or six years after the attack, law enforcement can tell the exchange then that those are illicit funds and you, they can seize them at that point. What happens when you don't need to cash out? In years down the line when you can use this currency to buy stuff and kind of it, it can be your cash out. Well, I think that's the point. At some point, people, the thought is at some point people will want to cash out to use the funds because otherwise what's the point? But yes, in theory, you could just no, hold know, the funds when in you, the When wallet. you can start buying for stuff with, with crypto. I mean, that's a good question. If you could use it directly, but... At some point, even for that interaction or that transaction to happen, I mean, I don't know. I don't know how direct it will be. Um, so that is a good question. If you could use that Bitcoin then to buy other things, perhaps that is a way in the future. I mean, and people are already using Bitcoin to purchase things and to buy things, but I don't know how that actually works. But as Aaron told me, it's that point at which people want to transfer crypto into real cash, right. as in fiat, fiat currency. Right. That's the point at which you can get them. Okay. Um, so money laundering on the blockchain. We've talked a little bit about this, and we won't go into too much depth. We're not going to get technical or anything with this. But it can happen in different ways. You think about money laundering in day-to-day -day life and the way that we think of it, right? Old-school money laundering. Well, here's the new-age money laundering. You can do things, for example, where you're swapping from one coin to another very rapidly on different blockchains. So, for example, think of you being on a highway, and you're just switching lanes really quickly, and there's all this other traffic, and you're evading law enforcement because you're 
getting away through the traffic. Right. You're, you're making yourself difficult. That's, that's the kind of image I can relate to. So. You're making yourself difficult to catch. The other one is, is literally like a washing machine. What they do is they have mixers. So it essentially mixes your cryptocurrency. Let's say I've stolen some crypto from you, Rob. It mixes that stolen cryptocurrency in with a bunch of other people's crypto. It's almost like a washing machine said, washing machine that's tumbling it all together. And when it comes out on the other end, you don't know which output connects to which input. Mm. So it's just literally going through something that's mixing it up with a bunch of other things. So you okay. can't tell what's what anymore at the end of it. So there are different ways that this is done. Yeah. Um, and of course, you know, if they know that they need to hide these transactions and they're working to do that, it is difficult to trace. But of course, you have law enforcement, you have IT experts that have tools that they're using to somehow get around that and follow the transactions even through those methods. A lot of these illicit activities will use what's called a dark net market. Think of a marketplace, essentially, right? But it's on the dark net, so you can get a sense of sometimes it's it's not approved kind right. of transactions that right. are happening, right? right? One of the big ones that was busted was called Hydra. Something that they would do is they would anonymize funds, crypto, and then help people cash out. In some cases, literally, they would bury cash in a location, physical cash in a location underground, and send person the location so that they could go pick it up. I mean, that's how shady this is. Wow. This is crazy. Right? I cannot wrap my head around this. This is dark. Darknet matter, markets are, are an area of really critical infrastructure that enable a lot of this activity. Um, and we're going to talk about that Wired article I mentioned right at the beginning. It was a topic of how some researchers, some IT experts, essentially busted a service called Welcome to Video. They were selling illicit child abuse material. So we're going to talk about how they busted that massive operation. I have to admit, you've done a very good job of explaining this so far, Sonal, and I'm, 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 I'm still with you, <laughs> which is I didn't expect to be this late on into the interview. I'm glad. I think you're keeping an open mind. Very much so. Because essentially what we're talking about is, you know, you could get caught up in the technology of it, or you could just think about the fact that this is criminals and people trying to catch them. Sure. And that's, it's just, it's they're just, just a, operating in a different sphere. It's a newer way than what we're used to and what we typically hear about. So I find it quite fascinating to learn about this whole different world. Now, I had mentioned the welcome to video case. I'm going to summarize that in the interest of time because there's some other cases that I actually would rather talk about. But essentially, and this is the subject of the Wired article that I was telling you about that was absolutely brilliant. You must read it if you get a chance. Um, essentially, they, they found this really horrible, it's very disturbing, child abuse ring um, platform called Welcome to Video on the dark web. And what they were able to do through following payment tracks, through following how people were paying for that ultimately, they were able to locate the server. So the person who was uploading and running the whole business, they were able to locate certain people who were purchasing that content. And they were able to somehow locate as well the people who were providing that really disturbing and illicit material in the first place, thereby saving hundreds of victims from their attackers. Amazing. Yeah, I mean, it's a really incredible story. But I want to move on to another one now because Aaron told me about another investigation with Google. Google wanted to take down a botnet. And what this botnet was doing, and it's botnet, just think of it, it's an automated kind of uh, service that people are using to victimize individual computers. They're getting onto your computer, Rob. They're getting onto your laptop because you've clicked on something through a phishing attack without knowing it. You've clicked on a link. Somehow that malware has made it onto your computer. You don't even know that it's there. And what they're doing is they've got keystroke monitors so they can see what keystrokes you're pressing, right? But that's not all they were doing. It was also leveraging the victim's computers to mine cryptocurrency, which is an interesting 
tactic for a botnet, but the botnet itself was was actually deploying um, mining rigs on these victims' computers and essentially stealing the processing power of these machines to mine cryptocurrency. It's um, it's usually referred to as crypto jacking. But this particular botnet was unique in that it it leveraged the bo- the blockchain to essentially stay alive. So we've talked a lot about money laundering and the way that stolen funds flow through the blockchain. But this one is unique in that it was um, it wasn't using the blockchain to launder funds. It was using the blockchain to stay alive and to stay online. So all, all of these hacks and ransomware attacks, it's all done through malware. So malware is installed on a, on a machine through some kind of vulnerability, whether it's a phishing attack or something like that. And that malware communicates to a server. And that server, if it can be taken offline it will disrupt the communication to the malware. So a typical way of basically sinkholing or killing malware is to cut the communication line to that command and control server. So just to clarify that, this malware has made it onto your computer, right? Because you have clicked on something inadvertently. You don't even know it's there. It's running in the background. And what it's doing, it's actually using your computer's processing power without you knowing it to mine cryptocurrency. Because you know it takes a lot of processing power a lot of computing power to mine crypto. So it is then getting all this crypto from your computer without you knowing it. So uh, you what essentially have doing to you? a mining rate. It's using all your computers. Pro- it's using a significant amount of your computer's processing power. So it's slowing it down. It's taking up space on your computer, right. right? It's doing all these things, doing it all without your consent. Now, here's the thing, as Aaron was saying, if you don't want it to work anymore, you just have to cut the tie with the server. But how do you know the server? Essentially, what they did is, once again, they followed the money. They saw that the blockchain was somehow communicating which server it was on. And so by looking at that, they were able to work with Google's lawyers and sinkhole, as she said, basically block off those servers from being able to access your computer, thereby taking it down. Wow. Yeah. It's another world, isn't it? Yeah. And you wouldn't, she said, here's the thing is that could be on my computer right now. And I wouldn't know it because unless I was looking for the specific file, a lot of these things are set up to evade your standard virus scanning tools. So unless I knew exactly what file to look for, I wouldn't even know it was there. Um, So now she also told me, I do want to get actually into a personal story really quickly, if we could. When it comes to individuals, you hear quite sad stories of people who are being scammed, losing their life savings. Erin did tell me that her company doesn't do too much of this kind of work, but occasionally they are able to help. And of course, it's particularly rewarding. A few months ago, uh, a woman reached out to me on LinkedIn and she had been, um, a lot of people are, you know, newer investors in cryptocurrency and she, she had invested the money that she had intended to be for, for her kids, for college into a cryptocurrency wallet. And it was, it was at an exchange and she assumed it was safe and, um, she fell victim to a scam and ultimately the, the money was, was stolen from her. And that was all of the money that she had envisioned for for kids to go to college. And there, you know, there's no real way to get it back once it moves into these scammers' hands, unless there you have the ability to engage a company like Chainalysis or you know law enforcement officers are are focusing on an individual case like that. 
but we we were able to to help her trace the funds. Um, we were able to help her open up a case with her local law enforcement at the state level, and um, that all ultimately was able to to re- recover the funds. So that that one was particularly meaningful. And we do we do try to help individual victims because there's a lot of them. There's so many scammers out there, and people fall victim to scams all the time. And it's just a it's a terrible thing for the cryptocurrency ecosystem as a whole. Here's the thing: this is the new world that we're living in. What's the profile of these of these individuals though? The who individuals are who are committing these crimes. Who are these people? Is what I want to know. They're not. They don't have regular jobs, do they? They're part of cartels and syndicates and right. Like organized crime is organized crime, right? You could say the same about the mob or the mafia or I you wonder know, where the criminals I wonder where the criminals have been left behind who didn't get tech savvy. <laughs> you know, like in the real world when I, I'm one of them. Yeah. I'm a professional who's been left behind by my Ill- tech illiteracy. Imagine a criminal just going, oh, I wish I'd learned malware. What did I, what did I get into <laughs> that five years ago? What am I doing now? Still, you know, doing normal stuff. <laughs> Do normal yeah. stuff? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, still holding up stores and stuff. What am I doing yeah. that for? Uh, you know? Yeah, exactly. I wonder whether I mean, there are criminals out there going, should have teched up, should have got myself clued up <laughs> on this years back. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's enough people out there doing it. There's enough space for all of them, it seems, Rob. Yes, indeed there and is. fortunately for us, there are people like Erin Plant who are trying to fight this and trying to do the good fight. So thank you very much to her for explaining these concepts to us because it is important to know. It is the world we it live in now. It certainly is. Big thanks to Erin. The Offscript Podcast. We hope that you enjoyed this episode. Please do go ahead and click subscribe. You can also check out our other podcasts, Time Capsule or The Big Interview. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. 